episode number 36. Welcome to the Higher Life Podcast, lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Higher Life Podcast. In this week's podcast, we're going to have Torah portion of the week by Yishlach, how to stop ignoring what's important, the evil of indifference, a powerful powerball about being number one, a great story about Rabshach and peace in your home, peace and education. And now, the Torah portion of the week with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. So if Chaim Shmuel Lovitch starts out in this week's Parsha with a Gemara in Sukkah, the Gemara says like this, whoever is greater than his fellow man, his evil inclination too is greater. In other words, in order for a man to have free will, if he has a tremendous drive towards good, he also has to have a tremendous drive towards evil, or else it would be uneven. And in that same Gemara there, Abai explains that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, goes against Torah scholars more than anybody else. He tells a story about Abaya. One time, Abaya saw a simple man who was refraining from sinning in a certain situation. Abaya said, Oi, if I would have been in the same situation, I wouldn't have been able to stand up to such a test. And leaned against the doorpost. An old man came up to him and said, Who is ever greater than his fellow man, his evil inclination too is greater. So we see that the Yetzirah goes against a bigger man disproportionately. But the question is now, how can it be the exact same situation is a greater Yetzirah for the bigger man? So he was, Abai was complaining, saying, listen, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have been able to stand the test. But it's the exact same situation. So what makes it greater for the Torah scholar or the person who's trying to do the right thing? Why is this Yetzirah greater? What is it about the situation that makes the Yetzirah greater? What forces does the evil inclination use in order to get to arouse the person? So the Bereshish Rabbi says like this. It's also quoting Abaya. The Yetzirah could be compared to a decrepit man who's posed as a robber sitting at the crossroads and ordering whoever passed by to surrender his possessions. We're talking about a decrepit man, an old man. And he's telling everybody to give up your stuff. Until one shrewd person walked by and saw that this guy is too feeble to rob anyone, and he beat him. That was the muscle. So really, in a certain sense, the Yetzirah is very weak. So if Chaim Shmuelovich explains that in reality, his only strength is, is an illusion, the illusion that he creates, the building up of the imagination inside of the person, how they're going to think how this sin is so great. He goes on to explain, also brings another Chazal that says the Yetzirah is like a dog who pretends to be asleep. And he's just waiting for the guy to look away, the baker to look away, and then he's going to grab the bread. Because why? The Yetzirah is actually too weak to confront a person head on. It's only when our guard is lowered. In other words, the fantasy can only have power over us as long as we're not thinking too much about the reality. As long as the fantasy is there, so then the reality is pushed to the side. And that's the Yetzirah. And he brings a beautiful riot from this week's Parsha. you got to hear this. When Yaakov met up with the angel of Esav, and Yaakov was fighting with the angel the entire night, and the dust was going up to the Shemayim. So at the end, after Yaakov beat the angel, even though Yaakov did get hurt, because his giranashe in the thigh bone got hurt, but still he beat the angel, he asked him, please tell me your name. So what did the angel answer back? He replied, why do you ask for my name? 
So the Svorno explains when somebody asks for the name of something, they're asking for the essence. Yaakov Avina was asking the Yetzirah. We know that this angel was the Yetzirah, was the Satan, the evil inclination. And he was asking, what is your essence? So most Meforshim explained that to mean that he answered back that I don't have an essence because really it depends what my job is in the moment. Angels are only given one job at a time. So he answered him back, it's useless to ask my name. But Rav Chaim Shmuelovich has a different explanation. He's saying he did answer him. And the answer is, my essence is this. Why do you ask for my name? That is my essence. He was saying, my essence, my strength lies in the fact that people do not pause to examine me more closely to know my name. In other words, my essence is, why do you ask for my name? That's the essence of the Sahara. Because as soon as you ask for the name, as soon as you start to think about it, then the fantasy starts to fall apart. Because the fantasy of the sin is always much greater than the sin itself. The dream of eating that piece of cake is always much greater than the actual piece of cake. He explains, if the dimensions of sin will be clearly perceived as they really are, man will be able to withstand the enticement of sin. But since the Sahara builds up this whole illusion, one becomes blinded, and he starts to lose his seichel, his intelligence. And Chazal says, a person does not sin unless a spirit of foolishness enters him. So this answers how the Yetzirah could be greater in the Tamachachim than it can be in a regular person. The circumstances might be exactly the same, but the Yetzirah comes against the Tamachachim with a greater spirit of foolishness. He builds in a bigger fantasy into that person. And that same Gemara quotes will be in the end of days. The Holy One will bring the evil inclination and slaughter him. At the end of days, the Yetzirah is going to be killed in the presence of both the righteous and the wickedness. To the righteous, it will appear like a towering mountain, and to the wicked, it will look like a thin hair, and both will cry. The righteous will weep and say, how are we able to overcome such a big mountain? And the wicked will cry, oh, how come we couldn't overcome such a small hair? So we see it's the dream, it's the fantasy, the dimyon, the imagination that pulls us into sin. And society is constantly bombarding us, the Jewish people, with all of this nonsense of Alamazeh, the fantasy of this world, and what it's going to give us. The Beis Levi says like this, he brings a Pasuk from this week's Parsha, Yaakov was praying, please save me, please save me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav. So the Beis Levi yes. why does he have to say twice? He said, being saved from the hand of my brother, and then he had to say again from the hand of Asaph. The answer is he was really praying for two things. If he's Asaph, but he's not my brother, he's acting like Asaph and he wants to kill me, please save me. And also please save me even if he's acting like my brother. Because being friends with Asaph is just as dangerous as being enemies with Asaph. And this is an example of Maisim Avos Simanim Labanim. What happened to the fathers of the Jewish people is going to happen to the children of the Jewish people. All the time we're in exile, we have two possibilities. Either nations want to kill us or they want to befriend us. But either way, it's to our detriment. We go through stages in the history where they want to kill us, like the Holocaust. And we go through the stage now where they want to befriend us. What's happening? Assimilation is 80%. And Jews are constantly being pulled into the false philosophy of materialism. 
It's not a Jewish idea. The prophet Avadia said, In the future, Esav will wrap himself in his talis and sit next to Yaakov and say to him, You are my brother. In other words, Esav is going to seduce the Jewish people away from Torah and mitzvahs to run after the pleasures of this world and view life as a temporary experience and whoever dies with the most toys wins. And every day it's Mechadesh, a new thing, a new way, a new iPhone, a new iPad, a new computer, a new car, new clothes, new furniture, new things. Always Mechadesh is new things in order to pull us away from our service to God. Because in order to be learning, in order to be doing mitzvahs, we can't be so involved with this world. Of course, we have to have the pleasures of this world. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not the focus. Reverend Victor Miller brings down on the same Pusik. Why do you ask my name? He brings down by the case of Manoach in the Tanakh, when he also met up with an angel. So the angel said to him, why do you ask my name, which is secret? But here, the angel didn't say, why do you ask my name, which is secret? Because there, the angel was not the Sahara. Here, here is the Sahara, and every day he has a new name. He has a new thing going on. So his name's not secret because even if you know it, one minute you don't know it the next. The media, the society is going to come up with a new idea to drag you away from serving God. So the question is now, what do we do? How do we fight this Sahara? How do we fight the media? How do we fight all these pleasures that are coming at us at 100 miles an hour? So the answer is also in this week's Parsha. By Esav, when Esav and Yaakov met up, what did Esav say? Esav used the word, I have plenty. When he received the gift, I don't need the gift, I have plenty. And Yaakov said, I have everything. So Rashi explains it to me that Esav was being arrogant and he was saying, I have plenty and he was telling him how much he has. And Yaakov was being humble and saying, I have all I need. But the Chavetz Chaim brings a different Peshat. Esav was saying, I have plenty, but it's open-ended. And Yaakov was saying, I have everything. I don't need more. I'm not lacking everything. Yaakov was Semech Bechalko. He was happy with his portion. He was satisfied with what God gave him. And Revolbi extends this idea. He says, Since Esav's life was revolved around pleasures and materialistic acquisitions, so all he could possibly say was, I have plenty. Because there's no end. A person will never feel he has everything. Chazal tells us one who has 100 wants 200, and one who has 200 wants 400. And a person doesn't even leave this world with half his desires fulfilled. But Yaakov was happy with what he had. But it didn't come from weakness. He says, being content with what one has does not stem from a feeling of resignation. Oh, let's depressed. I'm going to make do with what I have. No, it's a positive frame of mind. I'm happy with what I have because what I have is good. It's seeing the good and what God gives you. It's the opposite. The person who's not happy with what he has, a person who is obsessed with buying the latest fashions and home furnishings will never feel he has anything that he desires. And fix the kitchen again and redo the living room and redo the kitchen and redo the bathrooms and get the new couch and get a new car. There's no end. That's the person who's going to feel down and depressed because he doesn't have what he, quote, needs. But this is exactly the point. That's the Sahara, The fantasy, the dream. 
the imagination of what you could have. But the character that Yaakov had, that is the solution against the Sahara. Being happy with what you have. What's fantasy? Dreaming, imagination? You're dreaming, imagining because you don't have something in reality. So you have to think about what you don't have. And you're all day thinking about what you don't have. And you're dreaming, I wish I had this girl and I wish I had this car and I wish I had this thing. Dreaming, imagining how great it's going to be. It's Kulo Sahara. That's all the evil inclination. To counterbalance that, you have to be happy with what you have. Be in reality. And focus on quality, not quantity. We stop dreaming about all those things, we'll realize that life itself is good. What God has given us is good. Brings the Gemara and Barabbasar that says like this, 16b. Three people were given a taste of the next world while still in this world. you got to hear this. It's a taste of the next world in this world. Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. Why? Because Yaakov said, I have everything, call. And three people ruled over the year Sahara. Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. Same idea. It's a taste of the next world to be happy with what you have. And this is what we do in Havdalah. We say, Kos Yeshuos. We lift up the cup. Chazal tells us that means the coast. Why? Kos is limited. How much could you put in your cup? Only a certain amount. But you're happy with what you have. And a person who does this and slowly weans himself from all these dreams and all these fantasies, he is weaning himself from the Eight Sahara. Because like Rev Chaim Shmuel Levitch said, the Yet Sahara is, why do you ask for my name? The Yet Sahara is fantasy, imagination, dreaming. A person who takes away those things, he's taking away the Yet Sahara. He's happy with what he has. And just the opposite, the person who engages with the pleasures of this world, the more sucked in he gets. Rabbeinu Bachia says like this, the more frequently one engages in such activities, the more they become part of one's personality. Preoccupation with such concerns gradually estranges one from God. On the other hand, the act of eating, if performed within reason, in other words, qualities that are appropriate to your physical needs, actually make you spiritually healthy and physically healthy. And he brings down Eliel and Navi, who reminded the people when they were worshipping Baal that God has instructed them to become sikhlim, intellectually oriented people. We are commanded to use our minds, to use our cycle, to use our intelligence. So not to get sucked into all the fantasies that the world are pumping at us. And this is exactly what it means. Why was Yaakov limped at the end? That was his connection to the physical. The Gid and Nashe is connected with the thigh, which is connected with the sexual part of the person. And Yaakov limped after that for a while. In other words, the Jewish people are going to be limping from their involvement with the pleasures of this world. And this is the fight with Esav. This is the fight with the nations of the world that are telling us what life is about. And the Vilna Gon in Evan Shlema says like this about the Sahara: Sediment preserves wine when it's resting on the bottom. In other words, the sediment of the wine preserves the wine. But if the sediment rises, the wine becomes unfit to drink. The same is true of the evil inclination. As long as it's subordinate to the good inclination, it is beneficial to the world. In other words, to procreate, in order to eat, in order to do the things we need to do. But once it rises to the top, it gets mixed in with everything. It ruins all the wine. So that's the idea, not to stir up the sediment. The more you dream and fantasize about all these things, the physical world, the more it's going to mess up your life. 
And there's no end. Because if you have 100, you want 200. If you have 200, you want 400. Chazal tells us there is a small limb in man. The more you feed it, the more it wants. So the way to break away from the essence of the Yetz Tahara is to stop the fantasy. Now, how does a person stop the fantasy? So the Messiah Yisharim gives the answer. He says like this, Come, let us do a cheshbon, an accounting. And therefore, those who rule over their evil inclinations say, Come and evaluate the balance sheet of the world. The losses of a mitzvah versus its gain, and the gain of an avera of a sin versus its loss. In other words, as soon as you start to apply your mind, like we said, as soon as you start to use your seichel and you start to use your mind and you're in reality, the Yetzahara will start to break down. Because the Yetzahara has no power. It's just pure fantasy, dreaming. As soon as you start to do a cheshbon, do an accounting of the loss of the avera, if you do that sin, what is it going to cost you? What's it going to cost your family? What's it going to cost your friends? What's it going to cost your relationships? Just thinking of the moment of pleasure. I knew a true story of a boy, a religious boy who was one time seduced by an older woman, and she was married. And until this day, that boy cannot recover. That's the Sahara. Just in the moment, the fantasy of the moment. Did you think of the ramifications of the sin? Did you think about where it's going to take you, what it's going to do to you? And that's what the masters of sin, the people who have overcome the Yetzirah, are telling you. Do a cheshbon. He says, this advice could only be given by those who have already overcome the Yetzirah. And what's the advice, he says? Come do a cheshbon. Do an accounting. Evaluate the balance sheet of the world. And he says, for these are the ones that experienced and have seen and have already learned. They know the true way. And the true way is to use your intelligence and to break out of fantasy. He ends with the Pasuk from Echel like this. Let us seek out our ways and examine them and return to God. So with a little bit of spiritual accounting, checking what you're doing and thinking what you're doing, together with the character trait of being happy with what you have, you'll be able to beat your Yetzirah, your evil inclination. Here is a powerful parable. Open your mind and help you reach your potential. So the Magid Maduma brings a mushal about being number one. Brings the plastic from last week's parasha, it says like this, Hashem saw that Leah was hated and he opened up her womb. So we know that Leah gave birth first. So he asked the question, what is the connection between Leah being hated and Hashem opening up her womb? He brings the mushroom like this. There was once these three important people who were responsible for all the affairs of the city. They basically ran the city. So the nobleman on top of them, he was the one who appointed them. So there was another guy who says, listen, I also want to be one of these guys. So what he would try to do is always try to speak to the friends of the nobleman to try to get him in with a meeting in order that he should also become one of the big shots of the city. He would buy him gifts and try to get in to speak with him. So one time he knew somebody who was very close with him. So what he did is he gave him a letter requesting that, he be, that those guys should be taken down and he should be put in their position. 
And he tells the guy, listen, when you find a good day, please give it to him. So exactly on that day when the guy was planning on giving it to him, there was a whole scandal. What happened is those three guys did bad things and they were about to be put into prison. That same day, the guy brought the letter asking him, can I be put in the place of those three guys? So the nobleman, the government said, no, no problem. Let's put this guy in jail instead of these three guys. So what was the nimshal? So really what was supposed to be, there was Rachel and Leah. We know that Avram and Yitzchak both had wives who had a decree that they weren't going to have any children. Sarah was supposed to have children. And also Rivka was barren. So the first wife of all the Avos was supposed to be barren. Who was the first wife? Leah. Leah was really supposed to be barren. Happens to be that Yaakov had a second wife, Rachel. So she was supposed to give birth. So what does the verse say? The verse says, Hashem saw that Leah was hated. In other words, Leah was really number two, not number one. Rachel, even though she came later, but she was the number one wife. So therefore, what happened? That's why, because she was hated, Hashem opened up her womb. In other words, Rachel, who was really number one, her womb was closed. And Leah, who was number two, her womb was open. So being in the higher upper position or the number one position is not always the best position to be in. Because along with that, there comes other decrees that may not be so pleasant. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. So when Yaakov sent a gift to Esau, the Pasuk says like this, and put a space between herd and herd. In other words, he separated all the herds with a space. So the Midrash explains that Yaakov was really praying, Master of the universe, if trial and tribulations befall my children, do not afflict them ceaselessly. Don't make it continuous. Rather, leave space between them and their troubles. So one time in Rev Shach's yeshiva, there was a boy that was getting older and older. He refused to get married. He wouldn't talk to anybody about it. He refused every girl that was offered to him. So Rev Shach said, I got to speak with the boy. He spoke with the boy. And the boy promised to listen to people's suggestions during the summer break. So what happens? The summer break came and it went. And the boy is still not listening to anybody. This kept going until Yom Kippur. So Rev Shach said, listen, we had a discussion. You said you're going to listen. What's going on with you? Why don't you want to get married? The young man was silent. So Rev Shach said to him gently, you're probably concerned about the difficulties that arise in marriage. So he says to him, I'm not telling you you don't have anything to worry about. There are challenges. But it's important to know that problems don't all come at the same time. First, you have one problem, then you solve it. And another problem comes by and you solve that. They don't all come at the same time. So the words hit home, and the boy asked the Rosh Hashiva if he would officiate at his wedding. And the Rosh Hashiva said, yes, I'll even dance with you. He brought down a bottle of wine and gave it to the boy. And he said, with this bottle of wine, we will make the Kedushin at the wedding. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. So Rev. Dynamite speaks about Shalom Bayes, Peace in Your Home, and Chinook and the education of children. Because many parents fight with each other openly in front of the children without any shame. He said, I once asked the father, does your child have to hear all this? So the father said, yeah, he should know what kind of mother he has. He said, that doesn't make any sense. You're destroying your children. We know for a fact 
The first ones to divorce are those who came from a broken home. They copy exactly what they saw in their house. People say, oh, I saw so many negative things in my house. That's not going to happen to me. But it's not true. One time there were two sisters that made a pledge. They're not going to allow their husbands to treat them the way that their father treated their mother. But he pointed it out to her. You know what you're doing in your own marriage in order that it shouldn't happen, that your husband shouldn't treat you bad? You're treating your husband bad. You're treating him like a shmata. So what happened? It's still coming out to be a shaky situation because the kid sees that the mother has no respect for the father. Because that trauma has to go somewhere. A warm, loving home is not a luxury. It's the foundation of your children's lives. And even if your spouse doesn't deserve it, he says, at least your children deserve it. He says he gets at least eight phone calls a day about broken homes and fights that are happening. So much divorce and so many fights. He says, you know how embarrassing it is for a child to say they came from a broken home? And most of the children that go off the way that do wrong things, they're all coming from broken homes, from fighting in the house. He says the solution to this, which is not so easy, is the parents must have a unified approach. It can't be everything the father says, the mother says no, and everything the mother says, the father says no. In order to have good chino, good education of your family, you have to have shalom bayish, you have to have peace in your house. I'm not saying it's easy. He says some people make the mistake of thinking, no, you can't show too much love in front of your children because it's not sneers. It's not modest. It's not true, he says. There's nothing wrong with a wife saying, I'm so excited, Abba's coming home soon. He told a story of one girl who used to always draw when she was a girl, Pictures of a clock that pointed to 9.30. So when she was older, her mother asked her, were you so connected to Abba that you always drew 9.30 when, when Abba was going to come home? She says, no, it didn't come from Abba, it came from you. Because you were always saying, in a half hour, Abba's coming. On the other hand, you got to hear this. One cause of stuttering in children comes from parents fighting. The parents lose their self-confidence. The child doesn't know right from wrong. He says the essential quality of educating your children is how the mother or father reacts when their spouse comes home. Okay, that's it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave some comments. I would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening. Your voicemail could be featured on the Higher Life Podcast. Just visit rabbiminterhoff.com to ask questions or leave comments. 